This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. So far, it's been really tricky to make progress in understanding how kids learn because we don't have good tools for probing kids' brains at the age when the language explosion happens. We can put them in fMRI scanners when they're infants and can't tell us that they don't want to go there. (laughs) And then we can put kids in scanners again after about age four. But in that time between, you know, like six months and two and a half or three years old when the whole language system kind of sets in place and suddenly kids know hundreds of words and can put them together. We just don't have good tools to probe um, uh, the neural responses. Uh, But I'm hoping that with the advances that keep happening, we'll eventually be able to do it. That's Ev Fedorenko, a neuroscientist who studies how the mind and the brain understand and create language. She's asking tricky questions. Like, are we born with a built-in ability for language? Do we need language to think? How are some people called polyglots able to become fluent in many languages? And how do infants grasp the meaning of so many words so quickly? This is terrific to be talking to you because it's such an interesting subject. Thank you. You study the effect of the mind and the brain on speech. Language, to be precise. Language, (laughs) right. What's the difference between the mind and the brain in the way you study us? Um, that's a hard and good question. Um, the mind is obviously in the brain. So um, a brain, as and of itself, you know, it's just a bunch of cells clumped <laughs> together, right? Just like a heart or a liver is. But what's cool about it is the thing that it gives rise to, which is our ability to think, to talk about each other, um, to talk to each other. Uh, to build social connections, and that's what I'd like to understand. The ability we have to use language, Mm -hmm. is that found in one glob of the brain, or is it it circuits all over the brain that collaborate? Um, Another good question. There is some truth to both sides of how you phrased it. Ah. So it's not one little local region where everything is just performed. And then if you take that region away, you don't have language. So it is a distributed network of regions. And yet that network is highly, highly segregated from the rest of the brain. So there's just a set of regions in the frontal and temporal lobe. So kind of right above your eye, if you project it there and going along the side of the temporal lobe. Usually along the left side of the head, right? Over your left ear. Yep, exactly right. And so those regions all work together in the service of what we think is a common goal, which is to be able to uh, translate thoughts into utterances in production and to extract thoughts from utterances in comprehension, right? So when you're talking, I'm getting some acoustic signal. And from that signal, I'm trying to get the word sequences and then from them to infer what it is that you're asking me, uh, what what are you trying to convey to me? And um, when I'm trying to express an idea, I have some abstract thought and I'm searching my store of linguistic knowledge to find just the right words to express um, the thought that I have. 
You know what occurs to me as you describe that process is when you speak to me, I'm not just processing the words. I'm getting a lot of information that's useful to me from your tone and your volume. That's right. And that sounds like areas of the brain that are more connected to social areas maybe or not just processing words. That's exactly right. So that's actually, <laughs> it's funny you ask that because my one strand of my research is moving in exactly this direction. Uh, for many you know, years and even decades and centuries, language has often been studied by presenting people with isolated sentences, either written out or spoken. But in reality, most of the communication takes place in these highly rich social contexts, right? We see each other's faces, we see eye movements, we see gestures, we see body movement. We have all uh. this extra linguistic stuff in the voice, like how loudly you talk or, you know, kind of the affect that you have in your voice, which things you emphasize. And um, historically, different fields studied these different aspects of, um, um, you know, visual and social and linguistic perception, right? There's people who study faces, people who study um, prosodic information, intonation processing, and then there's people who study kind of the content of language, which is where I would put myself. But now we're actually trying to move in the direction where we're going to try to figure out how it all works together <laughs> by examining behavioral and neural responses to these rich signals um, and trying to understand how they're decomposed into different channels because we know there's a split in the brain substrates for processing these different components. But at some point, they have to give, give rise to an integrated construct, right, of Alan talking to me right now that all comes right. together in one. And so how that happens, we just don't know yet. This ability to use language that I guess all humans have, has the argument been settled yet about whether that happens at birth? Do we come in with that ability or is it only developed through social contact with our culture? It depends on who you ask. <laughs> so, I would say, <laughs> so I guess that implies that the question hasn't been settled. So um, as you may know, there was a strong position in the field originating from, well, not quite originating, but promoted most strongly by people like Noam Chomsky that there's a lot of innate structure that's built in, but um, there's no evidence for that. Uh, so uh, the kinds of arguments that people try to use uh, are arguments, so-called arguments from learnability. They're saying language is so complex that we can't learn it from the kind of exposure to language that we get. But most of those arguments don't really hold water because they postulate really, really dumb learning mechanisms. And there's now a lot of evidence about human learning and the sophistication of the learning abilities that we have, which make all sorts of complexities learnable from the input. And if I were to bet money on this, I would certainly bet money on the uh, learning story. Um, in general, I think we should stay away from postulating innate um, structures unless there's really, really compelling evidence for that. Um, the null should be, I think, you know, we have sophisticated, perhaps even general purpose learning mechanisms, and we can extract more structure from the input than, you know, monkeys can or fish can or whatever. But I think I would argue that there is probably nothing at the level of, at least nothing at the level of language. Maybe there's 
things like social biases, right? You know, you have to pay attention to speech signals because that's how you're going to survive, <laughs> right? As a baby, we're very useless babies when we're born, like we can't do anything. And so we have to be attuned to other social agents. So maybe there is some bias built in to like to look at faces and to hear human voice and to kind of try to stay close to those conspecifics. But beyond that, I would be shocked if there is more than that. So I was thinking, uh, I, I had read somewhere that you felt that studying polyglots, people who can speak many languages, seem to be better able to empathize. Is ah, that's that so? a claim. <laughs> uh, that's a hypothesis in the literature. Um, we have not tested that. So we studied polyglots for uh, a different reason. I'm just interested in what makes somebody good or bad at language. And there's many different ways in which you can be good or bad at language, but learning multiple languages is one dimension. And so we examined um, language processing mechanisms in individuals who have acquired, you know, dozens. I think our most polyglottiest polyglot um, was um, had knowledge of like 56 languages oh with different God. extents. That's amazing. So that just seems crazy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, what, um, what about you? How many do you speak? Oh, I really mostly speak um, English, and I have a dormant Russian, which is my native language, but I don't have um, many people that I interact with in Russian, and so it's just, you know, it's. I feel awkward speaking in Russian, like I forget words and things, but I used to um, learn a few languages, but, you know, when you live in the U.S., um, excuse me, I'm going to close my door. My dog just opened my door, and there's going to be barking. <laughs> One Did second. you just explain it to him? The idea of learning many languages is always interests to me, the ability to learn, to learn many languages. W what have you found, if anything, about what makes it possible for a, for a person to learn, for one person to learn a number of languages, for another person to be struggling with the one they were born with? <laughs> um, so... We don't know an answer to that. Here's what we found. We found that individuals who have knowledge of multiple languages seem to have a smaller language network, meaning that when you, pro when you look at how they process their native language, which is the language for which we can make a comparison between, say, a polyglot and a monolingual individual, their language regions work less. They're smaller in extent, and they don't light up as much, suggesting that they consume less energy. Okay, so why and how that happens, we don't know. Because to answer that question, you would want to take somebody before they learned a bunch of languages, you know, study their language system at that point, and then see if it changes as a function of acquiring multiple languages. Because as of right now, it's possible that some of these individuals have an efficient language processing mechanism from early on, right? As they learn their first language, they already are really good at language. And then they just utilize that capacity and that draws them maybe to learning other languages. Uh, but it's also possible that we start out with roughly similar quality language mechanisms. And then as we get exposed to multiple lexicons and multiple structures of different languages, our language mechanisms somehow get more efficient as a function of that experience. Um, and it would be a very hard experiment to do a longitudinal investigation, but um, so far that's, um, that's where we are. But what makes people good or bad is a great question that I'm deeply interested in, but 
it's challenging and we don't understand this population. It's a very heterogeneous population, I should say. Uh, and in fact, many people construe it like you just did, where it's easy for these people to learn languages. That's not actually always true. Some of these polyglots that we've studied who've learned quite a few languages, they say, no, it's actually really hard work and I spend many hours practicing and so on. And so it's not clear there's some kind of a talent, you know. Uh, in fact, some people argue very vehemently against that notion. So maybe there's different etiologies of polyglottism, if you will. But I think there's more to do there. I, I love uh, getting a smattering of other languages. I, I don't devote myself to the hard work you just described. But I love right. when going to another country to be able to speak enough, to say enough in their language to get them to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> that that, that makes thing, me happy yeah. if I can make them laugh That's in their great. own language. That's awesome. But, yeah. but what are the ways in which we learn? I, as I, when I was in school and learning grammar and analyzing sentences, and then later when I was trying to learn other languages, it seemed that Grammar wasn't as important. It was a, a thing that you do after you learn the language, not in for the process of learning it. What, what, what have you found about that's, that? That's, um, that's a very interesting and very controversial question. So, again, there's a quite a long tradition of focusing on the structure of languages. The focus on the structure of languages is actually very deeply linked to the hypothesized function of language, which for the tradition that has argued for the importance of structure has been um, in terms of language as the foundation for complex thought. So the emphasis has been on these kind of abstract hierarchical representations that we can have to think about the world and then, you know, we can externalize it as language. So am I correct? It sounds like you're saying that there are folks who feel you can't think without using words. That's exactly right. And they're the ones who feel that grammar is important to think properly. You have to be able to be grammatical in your language so you can be grammatical, you can be correct in your thinking. That's right. Follow a logical sequence. Exactly. Or something that they think language brought to our mind is the ability to structure our thoughts in particular ways. Oh, language now, is, think, is considered as thought to help us actually have complex thoughts. Exactly. I but I, I think see. they're wrong. Got to <laughs> <laughs> find out exactly how they feel before we tell them they're wrong. <laughs> I know, right? Um, so what I think is going on is that um, complex thought has evolved independently. Now, how it evolved, again, there's a lot of open question, evolutionary questions are um, difficult to answer. But what we do know is that all sorts of features that we find across the world's languages seem to suggest that the system we have has been somehow shaped by a desire, the need to efficiently get information from one mind to another, which could have been, again, for a million reasons, right? For there's a gossip hypothesis. Maybe when the social groups got larger, we needed to tell each other, you know, this person is to be trusted, this one is not. Or, you know, from the tool-making perspective, maybe when they got sophisticated enough, you want to teach your son or daughter how to make tools better, right? So there's many reasons for why information transfer may have become useful. But it seems like 
denying the communicative function of language at this point is just non, it's a non-tenable position, I think. Um, now, the question of what role language plays in thought um, is still, there's still some open um, parts to that question. But what we do know is that at least once your brain is in its full form state, right? You're an adult, you can speak a language, you can think complex thoughts. Now, imagine something bad happens, like a big stroke or a big tumor, and it takes over your language system or impairs it so that now you no longer have language. It seems that strikingly, all of the thought capacity is still there. These individuals who've been studied by um, a colleague of mine, Rosemary Varley, for many years, they can do math, they can reason about others' thoughts, they can navigate in the world, they can do logical puzzles, they can play chess. And so the fact that they can still do the multitude of complex things that we do, um, I think, suggests pretty strongly that language cannot be a key foundation for those thoughts. There are many writers who say, I write to find out what I'm thinking. <laughs> and, and my own personal experience along those lines is often when I'm starting to write something, I think with my fingers on the keyboard and, I, and, I, and a sentence or a phrase or an image will come out in words and I'll jockey them around on the page until I find a theme that's appealing. So there seems to be some connection in practice between language and thinking. But it doesn't answer the question, do you need language to do complex thinking? That's exactly right. And the phenomenon you, interest, you mentioned is very interesting. And my um, former mentor, Nancy Kamwisher, um, who I think you've interacted with yes, in the past, yes. we've had a lot of discussions about this because she and I both share this intuition that sometimes you think you really understand an idea. And then you go and you try to explain it to someone else or write it in a paper. And you're like, I don't quite have it. There's some aspects that are not quite crisp enough or not quite specified enough. And putting it in a structured linguistic format helps you sharpen um, the thoughts. So there's definitely that phenomenology. When we come back from our break, Ev Fedorenko marvels at her three-and-a-half-year-old daughter's ability to soak up language. And she looks forward one day to being able to understand how she does it. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Ev Fedorenko. How do we actually 
learn language? Do we tend to learn it the way sentences are analyzed in grammar class? No, I don't think so. <laughs> or do we learn do we learn something chunkier, something I think it's um I'm witnessing it right now. I have a three and a half year old and uh look, I mean, she's spending her whole awake time getting linguistic input, right? And eventually, mm. um, after, you know, a few months of life, I think kids just get the notion that, um, well, I think a little bit earlier than that, they start getting the notion that there's some relationship between these auditory or sign, in the case of sign languages, right? There is some relationship between these signals that other conspecifics produce and some aspects of the world, right? There's just a relationship. People are very good. Humans, even very tiny ones, are very good at noticing um, when things co-occur in time and space. And then I think eventually they get a notion that we can use these signals to talk to each other, right? We can exchange information, like I can tell you what this new word means, and I can tell you about the world and my thoughts and anything else. A complex system kind of emerges spontaneously when you've learned enough mappings between words or constructions and some aspects of meaning, but nobody understands how exactly that happens. So far, it's been really tricky to make progress in understanding how kids learn because we don't have good tools for probing kids' um, brains at the age when the language explosion happens. We can put them in fMRI scanners when they're infants <laughs> and can't tell us that they don't want to go there. <laughs> usually, it's <done. laughs> usually it's been done with uh, sleeping infants, but now a few groups, including at MIT, are studying awake infants. So Rebecca Sachs has been leading incredible efforts to study awake behaving infants in the scanner. That's just uh, an insane effort, and it's leading to some really cool insights. And then we can put kids in scanners again after about age four. For a girl, maybe at like three and a half. Girls are generally more <laughs> well-behaved, shall we say. And uh, <laughs> But in that time between, you know, like six months and two and a half or three years old, when the whole language system kind of sets in place and suddenly kids know hundreds of words and can put them together. We just don't have good tools to probe um, uh, the neural responses. Uh, but I'm hoping that with the advances that keep happening, we'll eventually be able to do it. Um, but um, it's, it's challenging methodologically. As we talk, there's something that keeps nagging at me, and, I'm, and I wonder how you would explain it to me. The idea that we're not born with a, a sense of syntax, I can understand that, that we need exposure to, to the cultural input. But the brain that is, is accepting of the cultural language that we're surrounded by, it sounds like that's something that we do come in with, some capacity especially because you said it's isolated from the rest of the brain. It, it, it doesn't sound like you feel it has other uses. If you don't use it to learn language, it doesn't help you lift uh, flower sacks or something. Right. Well, so, so the way I think about it is that the learning mechanisms are probably highly general. They're just mechanisms that we use to extract all sorts of structure from the world. Now, like I said, I think if anything may help you learn language is maybe some combination of uh, a general social bias, being attuned to conspecifics and the vocal and visual signals that come out of them, perhaps combined with some conceptual priors, meaning that maybe we have some innate understanding of physics, right, of gravity that maybe we'll learn already in utero, right, from minimal <laughs> experience with our bodies 
in an environment. Right. Maybe there is some understanding of agents. So these are the kinds of things, meaning there are entities that can act in the world, right? Like right, other, right, right, not not your book no, agent. No. <laughs> no. Right, you don't. You have to learn. You have to learn about that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, um, so I think uh, these kinds of conceptual primitives, this what sometimes referred to as core knowledge, may well be there. Yeah. Again, I think there is some suggestive evidence for some of these components, but any kind of notion that we have some structures that allow us to process linguistic input, I just don't see a reason to postulate it because there's now a lot of work showing that a naive system and uh, with a sophisticated enough learning mechanism can just extract a lot from the inputs. What do we know about when language began to be used? What are the what are the ways you can find evidence of that because there are no f- word fossils any place? That's right. It's not easy. I mean, people make all sorts of indirect inferences from the kinds of artifacts that existed that uh-huh. may have required cooperation and things like that. But in terms of, I mean, so one thing that's important to think about in that context is that our brains expanded, right? And historically, people have often talked about the frontal lobe expansion, but actually, there is a whole bunch of stuff that expanded. It's frontal, parietal, and temporal cortex. So it's basically Mm -hmm. anything that's not um, dedicated to primary motor functions and primary sensation perception, right? Getting like basic visual information or basic auditory information from the world. So anything other than that expanded substantially in humans. Now, um, some of that um, houses a system that's used for general reasoning, and that system has precursors in non-human primates and even in lower mammals. Um, it's kind of your reasoning system it's or system that's linked to goal-directed behaviors. And like I said, so at some point, we must have had a need arise to exchange information, right? And how, how exactly that started, I mean, I, I don't think anybody knows, but there are these stories, like either it has to do with the increasing social complexity and the need to keep track of information or the need to teach our kids about tools. But I don't think it's quite right to think about some fundamentally new circuits that had emerged. Mm, Yeah, tell me about that. So in fact, it seems that the circuits across the cortex are not so fundamentally different. And it would be really, and in fact, (laughs) some really um, cool evidence suggests that, for example, in individuals who are born blind, and so who have consequently a bunch of visual cortex that is not getting the input it expects, right? So it's just kind of sitting around there. Some parts of the visual cortex get integrated into the language network. So they start doing language. Now, in terms of like the morphology, like if anything is different, (laughs) it's, you know, primary visual cortex and um, the kind of association cortex that supports language kind of in most individuals. Um, So that, that tells you that it's not about the kind of morphology of the circuits that allows you to do something. So I think there's nothing special about these circuits. And people often ask, well, why did language end up in that part of the brain and not somewhere else? Why and did it? Not, I'll, I'll ask you that. <laughs> I don't what's, think What's all that? <laughs> I think a lot of the other stuff has been taken by other functions at that point. Like, oh, there I think was, there, it's the only place there was room? Kind of, yeah. Now, to go back to the earlier part of the conversation about language and social cognition, it looks like there is a very deep link between the regions that support different aspects of social perception and cognition and linguistic circuits. 
And there is kind of a hypothesis that has emerged now across a few different research groups that perhaps the cortex that now supports language and a lot of sophisticated social cognition started out as kind of a general social information processor, right? So there's kind of a separate system for general reasoning about the world and goal-directed behavior. And then there's a system that's just receptive to social information. Mm. And then as we get more and more experience with social agents, with communicative signals, we see a fractionation of that space into now, you know, a subset that stores symbolic representations that map words onto meanings, a subset that processes your gestures, a subset that processes your eye gaze, right? And then together, they somehow give rise to successful social interactions and communication. And something similar may have happened in evolution. I'm so interested in communication, how we relate to each other, how we, how we can learn to cooperate better and yeah. just let each other know what we really mean. Yeah. And when you talk about the connection between the social centers and possibly some powers of language developing through the uh, circuits that concern themselves with our social mm-hmm. world, mm-hmm. that's really interesting because there, to the extent that that's true, Language is a really important tool for where we stand in in the the world of people around us. I think that's right. I think it is. I think it's a big, big tool in our kind of social arsenal. Using language, we can build with each other really um, complicated relationships. But beyond that, we can also affect social change, right? We can bring changes to societies without language. It's hard to imagine how that could be done. And so language is really the foundation of culture, even if it's very separate from thought, which some people may argue is the kind of most exciting stuff, right? The actual thought representations. But without being able to share those thoughts with one another, we wouldn't be where we are. And so that's what brought me to study language, among the reasons that brought me to study language in the first place. Well, I'm so glad to have shared your thoughts with you today. You, this has been a fascinating conversation for me. We, before we go, we, we'd like to ask seven quick questions. Sure. That, that invite seven quick answers. Mm-hmm. Number one, what was the first thing you can remember being curious about? Um, that's hard. Uh, probably the underworld, like the <laughs> under the sea. The underworld. <laughs> That's not the right word. See, that's my non-native speaker. The world under the sea. <laughs> that's, oh. that's <laughs> A- very different. World. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that seemed fascinating. Once you understand that most of the planet is under the surface of the ocean, that was just striking revelation. But um, language was up there. It was just not quite as early. <laughs> as the. Okay, so Newton said, if I can see farther, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. Who would you say you're standing on the shoulders of? Great question. Um, I would say probably Claude Shannon, um, who developed information theory, um, would be up there. Mm. Um, Darwin is up there. Um, and my mentors, I mean, I would put them up there. Nancy Kamwisher and Ted Gibson, I've learned a lot from working with both of them deeply. What part of your research do you enjoy doing the most? 
Oh, I love analyzing data because that's when you get answers. But sadly, as you get older and more senior, you hardly ever get to do this. <laughs> Mostly students and postdocs do this, but analyzing data would be up there. Uh, and I like writing. I like telling people about what we found. Uh, as a scientist, what was the best moment you've had? Um, I think for the first time, seeing the language-specific responses when we've tested enough non-linguistic functions like music and math and logic, and then you just look at this response profile of these brain regions that respond to language, and you see the strikingly high response to hearing or reading language, and everything else is just slow. So playing music for somebody, which is very communicative for many people, you don't get that language response. No, no. Yeah, that, that's, that's so that was just a really key... Uh, insight for me in terms of what those regions could be doing, which is storing our language knowledge, which just doesn't overlap with anything else. What was your worst moment? There were a bunch. Unfortunately, being um, a woman in science, and I'm not very big in size, and coming into a field and trying to do something that contradicts dogma in various ways is not easy. So I think it's a collection of many little moments where I felt like people talk to me or treat me in a certain way, which they wouldn't be doing if I was a tall white man. So mm. it, it is, I think the field is getting better, but it's still a challenge. This next question leads really directly from that in this case. What gives you confidence? Um, I think my confidence comes from my parents, from my mom, who uh, from the youngest age I remember um, taught me that I can do anything. And that really got ingrained in me. I just really believe that. I believe that if I really, really want something, I can make it happen. And um, mm. it's been, mostly it's worked out. <laughs> I, so I don't know if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or if I would have had a very difficult life had things not worked out in various ways. And of course, you know, there are limits to that. Um, but I think something that parents can do is instill that confidence. And I think that's one of the biggest contributions you can do to your child. Final question. How can we help people, more people, enjoy a love of science? I think there's still a lot of work to be done on improving the ways in which we communicate science. I think a lot of, um, a lot of writing is not quite writing or... Um, presentations are not quite accessible to the general public. I think there is room there. But I think actually the pandemic has been, in spite of all the pain and suffering it has brought, I think one positive outcome has been that people started sharing things more, science more broadly, and I think in better and more accessible ways. And so a lot of information is just now more widely available and people find new tools for sharing. So like podcasts or um uh, kind of, you know, small-scale workshops that are then made accessible to others. So I think just keep thinking about this and keep thinking about the groups that historically have not had access to science will get you a long way. That's great. Thank, I've had such a good time talking Me with too. you. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you so much, Alan. That was fun. Great, Ev. Bye-bye. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine 
often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Ed Fedorenko is an associate professor of neuroscience at the McGovern Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Born in Volgograd in the former Soviet Union, she spent a year with a family in Alabama when she was 15 and decided to apply to college in the United States. You can explore her research team's work on how minds and brains create language at evlab.mit.edu. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Shriya Srinivasan. She's invented a way that people with a missing limb can move and feel their prosthetic arm or leg as naturally as if it were part of them. It's really, really incredible. This young lady who I'd worked with, she hadn't had um, a right foot since she was born. And so we had done the procedure on her and she put on that prosthesis and she said, wow, this is kind of how it would have been like if I had ever had a right foot. And she could see her left foot and the right robotic foot go, you know, at the same time. And it, it, there was just this like wave of relief. And that was, that was really exciting to see. Shriya Srinivasan. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>